Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Charlotte Linton, Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Research Fellow at the Sainsbury Institute to discuss Dorozome textiles and traditional crafts today. Charlotte will share with us how her change from the fashion industry to academia over environmental concerns brought her to the Dorozome or mud dyeing workshop of Amami Osima to understand the challenges and benefits of traditional crafting methods in a world dominated by fast fashion. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Charlotte. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Ollie. So first off, we want to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, um, I'm an anthropologist and a designer, and I work at the cross-section of material culture studies, uh, ethnoecology, economic anthropology, textiles, and Japanese studies. My expertise is mainly in textiles. I uh, study fashion and uh, as an undergraduate and um, printed textiles to master's level about sort of 10 to 15 years ago. So my knowledge is grounded in sort of the historical trajectory of design, but also in my experience as a designer and a, and a maker as well. So in my sort of previous career, I worked for myself, but I also worked for a lot of large fashion brands in London, Paris and New York. And I moved into anthropology in 2015 and I went to Oxford and did uh, the visual material uh, museum anthropology masters there. And then I moved on to my doctorate. So that's where I've sort of my fieldwork is based in Japan. And that's with natural dyers on the island of Amamiyoshima, which is in the southern part of Japan, just very near to Okinawa. And really, my focus at the moment is on the relationships that craftspeople have with their environment and the places where they use and draw those resources. So specifically, I'm sort of interested in, as a starting point, the natural environment. So the materials that people use and also how those materials are affected by the atmosphere, things like the weather, um, how the sort of body is influenced the way that they sort of make and also the kind of infrastructures that support those making practices. So uh, the water systems, the availability of particular resources, even things, you know, like where they get their energy from, their electricity, the sort of petrochemicals that they use uh, for heating, that sort of thing. So in terms of sort of looking at the environment, I'm also interested in the sort of social and economic side of things. So looking at the different economic systems that support traditional craft practices and also the sort of social networks as well so how that sort of functions locally whether it's sort of through family networks or or just sort of historical um, you know the way that people are historically embedded in sort of a local community but also how as is the case now more than ever people are interconnected across different countries but also globally. I'm also interested, particularly in terms of craft, in who is doing the craft. So historically, people think about craftspeople as being um, maybe a little bit older, especially in Japan. There's a lot of sort of master craftspeople. But I'm interested in looking at why there's an uptake of, of craft practices by a younger generation and sort of looking into who they are, what is their social and economic status, 
what is their, their background, uh, what did they study, you know, those, those kinds of questions. Amazing. So a really interdisciplinary approach. I love it. Before we get into your research, though, I'd like to just ask a bit more about your background, as I haven't met anyone before in academia who came from the world of fashion. So what made you choose such a huge change in career? Uh, yeah, there are quite a few reasons. Initially, I came out of university and I was working on my own brand for quite a long time. I was designing printed scarves and accessories. So I was doing I was doing that sort of pretty much full time and then doing sort of other small freelance jobs alongside that. I found sort of over time that I was more interested in the research side of the process. So I was spending six months designing one collection of, of scarves and I would spend most of that time doing the research. So the, the designs were quite intricate and, and had quite a big story behind each design. And if you're working in the design world, that's totally not practical at all. And it's, it's not very um, business savvy. You have to produce things quite quickly and quite with quite a lot of turnaround and they have to be very different. And yeah, my, my sort of style of working didn't really suit that. So I moved into working more with for other designers um, just to sort of to get sort of that experience, but also it was just much more practical for me to work in that way. Um, but while I was there, I mean, it's not the case in every studio, but some studios I worked with, there was a lot of issues around things like cultural appropriation, the underrepresentation of diverse communities, especially within the, the design studio itself, issues of overwork. And I felt like if I was going to kind of continue in, in the world of design, I needed to understand these more from a kind of academic perspective. So I felt like studying them ethnographically and analyzing them through the anthropological lens would feel a little bit more like I was making a difference and also kind of progressing the, the discourse of design rather than, you know, just doing the designing myself. Um, the other main concern I had working in design was, was the environmental issues. I think things are definitely changing now, and that's what I'm discovering more as I'm going on to do more sort of new research. But at the time when I, I mean, even in the space of sort of six years since I left the design world, there's so much waste and there's a lot of overproduction of samples and ideas and stuff. You know, it, it's very, very... Um, excessive I would say in, in a lot of design studios and that didn't really sit with me very well and then also at the time you know each company will probably have someone who is looking into the way that things are made and making sure that, that the staff are paid properly and also that there's there's no problems with the way that things are made and disposed of so the kind of ecological concerns and that's definitely improved in the last few years at least, but the, there were just not the conversations going on that I felt were necessary to tackle the problems that we're facing today. So that's, that's pretty much it. And I guess I also wanted to just train my brain a bit and use my brain a bit more. So yeah, that's, that's how it happened. Right. And so do you hope that your research might be able to start these conversations that just weren't happening inside of the industry? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're definitely happening in some places, but not at the time when I when I left, not in the way that I hoped they would do. So now I'm looking, I mean, especially within my thesis, I was questioning the idea of sustainability and looking at the way that very often the industry sees it as they basically find solutions to problems. And 
in a very kind of narrow perspective. So it's sort of looking at, okay, how can we change the materials that we're using or the dye stuffs that we're using? And how can we ensure that those people who are making our products are being paid properly? So it's quite specific rather than the issue with sustainability is that it needs a more holistic approach to look at the way that we live and the way that we consume and the way that we dispose of things. So yeah, I, I think that's, you know, with, if you're working in anthropology, you look at those bigger, bigger questions and those bigger, more structural issues that need to be changed to, yes, see the smaller changes within, within the industry. So I hope that, that my research is trying to tackle some of those things. Great. So in your time as a fellow at the Sainsbury Institutes, you've been working on publishing your research into the craftspeople of Amami Osima, as you mentioned, with whom you spent 12 months at a traditional textile dyeing workshop using the dorozome or mud dyeing technique. How did you find out about Amami Osima and what attracted you to spending a year doing field work there? Yeah, Amami is 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 a quite a small island, and not not much is is generally known about it. So it, yeah, it was a strange route to finding out about the island and about their textile traditions. So initially, I'd worked planned to work with indigo dyers in Tokushima, which is on Shikoku Island. So indigo dyeing itself is is quite a fascinating process, and there's there's also a huge amount of interest around the way it works, particularly because. You know, it's something that is recognisable. People think about the way that their genes are dyed, and that is typically using a, an indigo process. But today, most of those genes will be dyed with a with a chemical version of indigo. So it's difficult to explain without going into too much detail. But indigo <laughs> itself is a particular molecule, and it, you can extract it chemically or ma- make it chemically and use other sort of substances to produce something that looks exactly like a natural process. But the natural process itself, it, it requires sort of growing a plant stuff and then converting it into a way that can be used as a dye for textiles. And then it's once you've got your sort of indigo pigment or your indigo paste in Shikoku, they use something called sumaku, which is a kind of fermented paste that's used with these indigo leaves. And then you have to sort of create these big indigo vats, which you would then, you have to feed it with, uh, sometimes it's with like an alcohol or with a sugar and you, you, you're basically promoting bacteria within this vat, which then eats away at the sort of oxygen that's in the water that you have to sort of um, dilute it, dilute the paste with. And then that makes the indigo molecules available to the textile fibers. So um, yeah, with, you can do that chemically basically now. But um, so that's that's anyway a long way to say that <laughs> the point is that indigo dyeing is really interesting and a really interesting process, and it's just not what people think it is. So I was interested in what, in looking at that as you know as you know from a material culture perspective, it's fascinating the way it goes from being sort of a plant to sort of a dyeing material. And I was planning to work with a company, was hoping to work with a company called Boizu in in Tokushima. And they're a group of young uh, people who I think they're mainly from Tokyo. And they started, I think they they answered an advert in in a a sort of local paper to go and apprentice as as growers and and dyers. Um, And so the, the point 
I made earlier about in, being interested in who is doing the, the traditional craft. Boise is a, re- a really great example because I think they come from quite different backgrounds and they'd sort of come back to work in the countryside doing these traditional craft processes. So what was also really fascinating about them is that they had a studio in New York, which is where I was, I was living at the time before I started my master's. Um, and I met with a lady called Sayaka Tiyama, um, who's a really uh, great promoter of traditional craft in New York and, and in the United States more generally. And she was the studio manager at the time, and she is the one who told me about um, Amami and also Dolazome, the mud, the mud dyeing process. And she also told me that there was a show of Japanese traditional craft in Amsterdam called Mono Japan, which is a really uh, fantastic trade show. That would recommend if anyone is interested in these these things. They so they they cover textiles, but also pottery, different foodstuffs, woodwork, any sort of different traditional crafts. And they're interested in this sort of meeting point of kind of more contemporary lifestyles and these traditional craft products. So most of the products that they promote and that they sell there, it's not kimono. You know, it's sort of scarves and t-shirts and really great tableware that side of, that sort of thing. So. Kanai Koge, which is the dyeing company that I, I went to do my fieldwork with in Amami, they were being represented there and uh, Yukihito Kanai was there, who is the second generation um, master craftsman at Kanai Koge. So he was there running a workshop and I went to do a workshop there. I met Yukihito-san and thought he was really, really fantastic. And I sort of trusted my instincts that this would be a better, a better field site for me than going to Tokushima. It was something that's not so well known about. As I said, indigo is a very popular topic, whereas dolazome is, you know, hardly anyone really knows what it is. So I also did a bit more research into the Amami Oshima as well, into the island, and found out it had this incredible indigenous textile tradition and its own kimono silk, which is called Oshima Tsumugi. The island is also hugely biodiverse. Uh, it recently gained UNESCO World Natural Heritage status as of July this year. And it was also an incredibly beautiful island from what I could see. And it's, it therefore ticked all the boxes as to what can make a really interesting film site. I see. Amazing. Uh, so can you describe for us what the process of Dorozomi includes, as well as its benefits and disadvantages when compared to contemporary industrial dyeing practices? And uh, please do give us a brief history of the practice too. Yes, so Dolazome is, 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 is the mud dyeing process. So it's a process that has sort of two mordants, and mordants are the things that allow the dye stuffs to attach to the textile fibres. So first of all, you have to start with the dye stuff, which is produced from a local tree, and it's called it's Yido Hawthorn in English. Uh, in Japanese, it's called a Shalimbai. And the local dialect of this tree is Tejiki. So I'll refer to it as Tejiki throughout. So um, that's, that's the dye stuff, but it's also the, the tree, this local tree. So the tree is harvested from local forests, and it is chopped up quite finely, and then it's boiled for several days with an alkali, which helps draw out the tannins. And the tannin are these molecules that you find in all sorts of plants. And it will be in sort of the bark, in the in the wood, in the flowers. It can be in any part of different plants. And these are the molecules that protect the tree from different pests or fungal diseases, different insects, 
different sort of pathogens. So these are kind of really interesting molecules because they can also be passed on to the textile fiber and also sort of protect it from these similar sort of similar things, you know, when it becomes clothing, basically. So the first stage is to produce this dye stuff, which is the tetricky dye stuff. And you will dye with that over a very sort of long, long process. Again, I won't, I try, I won't try to go into too much detail, but it's a process of sort of massaging the, the fibers and getting the, the tannins into the cloth. And the next stage is to modern it with iron. So in Amami, the mud is naturally very rich in iron. So you you would first do the first stage of the process with the tetchiki, and then outside of the workshop, there's this space called the dolata, which is like the mud field. And these are sort of these big pools that are very sort of milky looking and muddy. And you would take the textile out there, out there and you would wash it and sort of massage the mud into the textile. And at that point, the color changes. It can usually just becomes darker. So Tetsuki is a very sort of pink, it starts out very pink, and then the more you dye with it, it becomes more red. And then as soon as you use the iron, it becomes more brown, so it gets this darker shade. So dolazome is a traditional process that is used for the, the yarns of Oshima Tamugi, which I said is this really beautiful kimono silk. So with Oshima Tamugi, the aim is to get the yarn to a black color. So you can repeat this process of the sort of tetsuki and then the iron, that can go on around 70 times to get the, the color strong enough in, into the cloth. So this is kind of how the process was used traditionally. But I was looking, I was more interested in, in looking at the kind of contemporary use. So as my background is in textiles, I, I went to the workshop and I was working as a dyer myself using a methodology that I sort of term participant apprenticeship. So this is something apprenticeship has been used quite a bit in anthropology in the past, uh, mainly actually with, with textiles, but also in sort of different processes of woodworking and pottery. So it allows you to get a really sort of in-depth perspective on the craft that is very, very much embodied, but also you sort of see the day-to-day runnings of the workshop and see some issues that might occur and some challenges that different people have. So dolazome is mainly used for Oshimatsumugi, but it's also the contemporary fashion and textiles. So in Amami, they're, they're working with different designers in the fashion industry in Tokyo. So they work with Yoji Yamamoto and Isimayake, which are some of the most famous designers in Japan. And they are working with producing yarn for the for sort of new textiles, but also things like T-shirts and they dye different corals and woods. They do dye any kind of natural product. So the process is very versatile in a way. So it has very strictly been used for kimono silk, but now it's been used for all different sorts of things. So there's quite a few benefits to this in terms of if you're talking about it from an environmental perspective, you're using locally sourced materials. So as I said, the trees come from the local forest and you're using local mud. With the more contemporary fashion of textiles, sometimes you would use powdered iron and different sort of materials that are, are bought in. But for the tetrugi liquid, it's something that's very local. So it has a kind of low carbon footprint. It's also a circular process of tetrugi use. So once you've used the wood for dyeing, uh, for, for, bo- for boiling uh, up the dye stuff, you would then use those wood chips again, and they would be used to fuel the furnace, which sort of boils the wood. So you've it goes in and it becomes like a a wood fuel. 
So once you've got the wood fuel, it then becomes ash, and then you can use the ash back inside the dye bath. So when you're you're boiling the dye stuff, so it's a very circular process. So that's also great for anyone who's thinking about the environmental issues that that come with textiles. There's also there's no sort of nasty fixatives. So with with chemical dyes, there's there's generally quite a lot of chemicals, and you're generally using natural materials, and they don't have any negative impact if you're washing the water out into the river, for example. There's also things like the after use. So if you've dyed with dolazome, the textile becomes a little bit waterproof, which is always a good thing, and that means it also resists stains if you were to drop something down you. And also because, as I said, it is really rich in tannins, it means that some of those protective qualities pass into the textiles. So, or the textiles, or the wood, whatever material that you're dyeing. So, for example, at Kanekoge, they had this really beautiful guitar that was dyed with dollars on men on the wall. So it means that it's a little bit more resistant to sort of pest attacks or something. During washing, uh, as we know, aftercare is a really important thing in the sort of world of sustainable textiles. Is how people care for the fabrics afterwards. So, it also means that you, there's no nasty chemicals passing into the water supply, and you can also over dye it afterwards. So, if if the textile starts to sort of lose its color, then you can restore its color by just dyeing it again. If you have access, to that. I mean, if you're in a mummy, you can go and dye it again, basically. Um, and it also has a really beautiful color and finish. So that's kind of the advantages of it. The disadvantages are that the colors are not necessarily stable. They can fade with use and washing and they're not so light fast. There's also a problem with natural dyes that they can transfer onto either your body. So, I mean, especially it's a problem with indigo is that you very often end up with blue legs if you've got a pair of new jeans. So that's often a, a problem. And also it can pass on to other materials. So, you know, for example, this is often a problem with, with Oshimitsumugi. It was originally a problem with Oshimitsumugi that if you're wearing this very dark kimono and then you wear like a white obi belt, which is the big belt that you would wear with kimono, then sometimes the color would transfer. So that's a little bit of an issue. Mm. It's also a locally bounded technique. So this can be a great thing because it makes it very particular to Amami Oshima, but it also means you can't replicate that same color elsewhere. And there's also limitations in the, the shades that you can achieve. With chemical dyes, you can blend the colors a little bit like a paint. So you can get around this problem by over-dyeing. So if you start off with something that's brown and then you over-dye with indigo, you end up with black, for example. So you can get around some of these problems. Also, the other problem with, with natural dyes is that you need a, an awful lot of the dye stuff. Generally, it's equal quantities of dye stuff to the weight of the material. So very often you think, oh, your clothes aren't that heavy. But if you sort of, if you weigh them, you suddenly realize, okay, I've got, if I'm dying with like flowers, for example, and I'm dying a t-shirt, then you need, you know, a huge amount of dye stuff. So that makes it quite expensive, which is, you know, obviously one of the issues. So if you're comparing it to chemical dyes, for example, within the sort of production stage and also the home care stage, the fashion and textile industry is responsible for around 20% of global water pollution. So that's, that's quite huge. And also 25% of worldwide chemical production is used by the industry. So I think that kind of puts things a little bit into perspective as to why you might feel like um, natural dyes are a better alternative. But it's not necessarily to say that it's about preferring one over the other, because, you know, I still wear and buy clothes and textiles that are dyed chemically. Rather, it's about buying less and caring for those textiles to extend their life and 
also trusting who you're buying from. You can look at the textiles that are approved with the, the GOT standard, which is the Global Organic Textile Standards. And this is a sort of regulation that shows that you're not using any chemicals that are dangerous to human health or ecological health during wet processing. So this is a stage of textile production, usually around dyeing or, or finishing, and that they're also disposing of, of water properly. So there's definitely benefits and disadvantages. But I guess one takeaway is just to really think about yeah where you're buying your clothes from and how you care for them i would say i see now i imagine you must have gotten quite close to the craftspeople you were working with what were their motivations for doing such laborious work and what were their concerns for the future of the practice yeah, I think you and I know it's very laborious because I, I gave a talk recently, but perhaps I've not explained that it is sort of that any any natural dyeing processes are, are very laborious. If you were dyeing with chemical dyes, you start with a pigment and you have some, some different fixatives and you pretty much mix them together, boil them, take something out and wash it. And it's, it's, it's generally quite straightforward. I think people probably would have experimented. A lot of people experimented with different sort of home dyes that you can get in different countries. And it seems like a very simple process, but with, with natural dyeing, it is definitely much more time intensive and labor intensive as well. So it's quite sort of physical on the body, especially dolazome. There's a lot of pounding and washing and carrying heavy buckets and squeezing. And it's, it's very, yeah, it's very sort of labor intensive, as you say. So for the, the craftspeople that I were working with, there, there was definitely a mixture. So there was a younger generation and older generation. So the older generation would have had an interest in dyeing and they would have would have been sort of local people who would have come and, and just, yeah, taken it up as a profession and pretty much done the same job every day, you know, for, for most of their career. Whereas a lot of the, the younger people who've come to Dolazome and the other sort of dyeing processes that they do at the workshop where I was working, there was a mixture of people. So first of all, people who were based within the family. So Kanaikogi is a family business. So it's made up of sort of a, a mother and father who are, in, who are in charge. And then there's sort of their children. So Yukita-san, who I, I mentioned already, he's in charge of the apparel side of the business. And he returned to Amami after working in the, the music industry in Tokyo. And he was concerned that the Dolazome process and, and also Oshimatsumugi, the kimono silk, were in quite a lot of trouble. So in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, the, the kimono cloth became very popular. It's, it's one of Japan's most sort of luxurious textiles and also one of the most expensive. It costs around sort of four to five thousand pounds for the silk for one kimono. So at the point where Japan's economy was really strong, a lot of people were buying Oshimatsumugi as a kind of a status symbol. But um, after the different financial crashes um, in the sort of 1990s and then into the 2000s, people saw that as, you know, an excess and, and stopped buying it so much. So that meant that, you know, Oshimatsumugi industry went from employing around 20,000 people in the 1970s to today employing only around 500 people. So another issue that the industry faces is a ready supply of craftspeople. So a lot of young people are not really interested in pursuing the craft because it is so laborious and it's also quite poorly paid. So people would either leave the island and, and get jobs um, 
in, in other professions or they, they go to university and then get uh, jobs in other professions or they'll stay locally and they'll, they'll work in sort of supermarkets or uh, convenience stores, that kind of thing. So Yukihida-san, he came back and he was thinking about ways he could change the business model. So away from just doing the yarns for Oshimatsumugi to also providing a service to designers in, in, in Tokyo, but also in other parts of the world as well to sort of offer them natural dyeing. And there, there seemed to be a demand. So he, he basically took it up and he offered a whole color palette that the designers could buy from in theory. So that was kind of his motivation. So it was part because he was interested in being a craftsperson himself and he really enjoyed dyeing, but also because he wanted to support Marmian traditions and also make it economically, more economically sustainable. So this is also the case for a few of the other younger Amamians who, who have come and they want to sustain the, the practice and also especially as I say there were so few craftspeople so it's important that those skills get passed on along the generations because otherwise there's just a huge gap and then there's no one to pass those very delicate skills on to. There was also quite a few people who came there who were interested more in a lifestyle change so they had moved from the city this is particularly a case um after the earthquake and uh, tsunami and um, nuclear disaster um, in 2011. So people have moved with their families to Amami, which is a really great place to live. As I said, it's a very beautiful island. The pace of life is slower than it would be in the city, and there's access to really great uh, local food products. And there's also the beach, which is always a great selling point for anyone. Um, so people were coming to Amami and and seeing that, oh, I could, I could be a craftsperson, I could sort of you know, lots of these people already would have had careers in textiles, but they they could come here and, and had have a profession as a dyer. So so that was, you know, really a key selling point for them. And generally those people are very interested in working with natural materials and you know, especially those that are kind of more environmentally sustainable. And also, you know, having that kind of it creates a real sense of belonging to be involved in a local tradition and especially one that's using a lot of natural plants and lots of resources in, in that area. I see. I'm, I'm just curious because in previous interviews with anthropologists, especially one of our interviewees, uh, Pauline Nicoletta, she was working in depopulating villages in Japan and with the Buddhist monks there and how they're keeping the community together. And she mentioned that she was offered a free house <laughs> to stay on in the village. And I was wondering if you were given a similar offer to stay on as an apprentice in Dorazomi. Um, I mean, I think people would have liked me to stay. So hopefully I'll, I'll be able to go back. But Amami doesn't have such an issue with depopulation as other areas of Japan, there is definitely a sort of downward trend in population numbers, mm. but actually because the island is quite small, the number it has now is actually, is actually. I mean, I don't think the authorities would say this, but in terms of, of you know, what land is available and what housing is available, it's probably at an, at an ideal point. So it's mm -hmm. quite far, hard to find houses. That's that's a bit of an issue, especially for people who are coming from the mainland. People tend to hold on to their house if they're from a mommy and it's their family, their family house. They'll, they'll hold on to it and not necessarily want to rent it out to other people. So yeah, so housing is an issue. The population is is doesn't seem to be such a problem. There seems to be jobs available for people. Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. And as I said, it's just gained UNESCO World Natural Heritage status. So 
I suspect things are just going to get um, worse. You know, as time goes mm. on, there seems to be a trend for people buying holiday homes there. You can get oh, a very right. cheap flight from Tokyo. And, you know, if you can go there for the equivalent of like £60, you know, for, for a flight and just spend the weekend at the beach, then, of course, that's really appealing. So, mm. so it, it, it's almost like... Amami might face some of the issues that we see in other parts of the world in terms of sort of gentrification and things. Yeah. In the uh, excellent lecture you gave us two weeks ago now, you mentioned that there was concern amongst the craftspeople that if their work was designated as intangible heritage, it would in fact threaten the practice by limiting the capacity for change. Was this dismissal of heritage status common in the workshop? And do you agree that heritage designation would ultimately harm what it tries to protect? Yeah, so people were quite dismissive of the prospect of getting heritage status. So this uh, would be the intangible cultural property status, which would be given to the kimono silk Oshima Smugi rather than Dolazome specifically. So Dolazome is just you know one of the processes in this very complex um, production of kimono silk. So as I said, Amami also you know recently got the World Natural Heritage status. Um, from UNESCO so people were generally quite dismissive of that as well I think a lot of people don't see what that necessarily has to do with their everyday lives it's more about what it says about the the island more generally so these are discussions that are decisions and decisions that concern local authorities and officials at the prefecture level and they're very much tied to the economics of the island this is especially the case with tourism for the world natural heritage status but it also ties you know tourism is also reliant on things like Oshimatsumugi so local crafts so it's it's you know it's a selling point of, of the island so the concerns of ordinary craftspeople are not always voiced and if they are they're not always listened to and, and this is a, a little bit of a problem um, when I was in Amami, there was a lot of discussion about raising the wages for the craftspeople in Amami. And it was quite hopeful for a while because obviously, as I said, the wages are about Japanese minimum wage, which is about, I think it's about seven pounds in, in British money. So that's that's quite low for quite a, a very skilled and a quite mm. labor intensive process. So they were talking about how the government might be able to support those craftspeople so that they stay working in the industry and they also attract new apprentices. As well, so this was something that was ongoing for quite a while and pretty much fizzled out quite quite recently. So that's a little bit of a problem. But if it does obtain the intangible cultural property status, it might improve the situation in the long term. It basically puts it back into sort of national consciousness of that that you know this is a an incredible textile and it should be celebrated and, and bought into but the concern is that as you say it limited, limits the capacity to change and so my research has shown that many of these traditions have changed especially across sort of the, the 20th century in terms of the different materials and technologies that have been introduced and the, the, the dolazome process is only said to be around 100 and 150 years old itself so Oshima Tamugi as a kimono silk has this sort of heritage of 1,300 years old, which is obviously very long. But what yeah. you see today is probably bears like a little resemblance to what was being made, you know, a thousand, a thousand years ago. Um, and that's because obviously, you know, as, as, as a textile has become um, commercialized, it's, it's trying to pitch itself to different markets so that means that you know of course it needs to change as, as fashion changes so if it it becomes um, a national heritage then 
it means that there's a lot of regulations put on the way it's it's produced. So that would restrict, uh, yeah, the opportunities for change in the future, which might, you know, need to you might need to adapt to to different markets. So so that's that's probably yeah that's where the where the issue is, and that's how how people generally feel in Amami as well. I see. Just to go on from that point about how this traditional craft might influence modern markets, we were talking earlier about the benefits and the challenges of dolazome compared to industrial practices. Is there any capacity for a middle ground? Because it sounds like a lot of the benefits of dolazome come from the laborious element of it and the amount of time it takes to create the final product, which just wouldn't be compatible with mass production mentality. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so generally a middle ground is reached by finding ways to um, make the process a little bit more efficient in terms of time and materials. So, yeah, as I spoke about this in my talk before, a lot of chemicals are used to, to speed things up. So, for example, with the contemporary textiles, they don't necessarily always use the dolata, the, the, the mud field. They would use like a powdered iron. And of course, mm. you know, that's much quicker. You can control the amount of mud that you're using rather than, you know, relying on something that's a, a natural substance, which you, you don't know whether the iron might be high or, or quite low. So that's sort of one way to, to deal with things is, is sort of materially. And also it's, it's time as well. So, if you're producing a naturally dyed textile, the longer you leave it between dye layers and also at the end of the process, if you also rest the textile, then it means that those natural materials, they can basically sink themselves into the fibres. So I always think a good way to think about this is that if, you, if you're wearing some clothes and you get a stain on it from food or, or for, from drink, if you leave, if you then put it back in your wardrobe for, you know, six months, it'll be much harder to get out than if you've got it out the next day. So if you can imagine that would be similar with, uh, with something that's been dyed, naturally dyed, then yeah, if it's, if it's sort of had a rest and then you, and then you dye it again, and then you, and then you rest it and then you dye it again, and you kind of build up these layers slowly, then of course the textile, the color is going to be much, um, is much more fast. As I said, that's kind of one of the disadvantages is that the, the fastness of the color is, is, is sometimes a little bit of a, an issue. So, yeah, so there's ways to do that. So basically you would speed it up within the process and, and then you're, you're basically passing that problem on to the customer. So it means that it's sort of more efficient on the production side of, of things, but then it means that the garment is not so sustainable in the kind of long term. So it comes back to this sort of thing of benefits and disadvantages and they're, they're definitely there. So that is, there is a middle ground of, of ways that you can change things up. But the problem is, is that the, the government isn't necessarily support that. So they're not sort of providing wages for craftspeople to continue these these traditions in a kind of more contemporary ways and that is definitely not the case wholesale because you know for example a lot of the the indigo dyes I, I mentioned earlier they get quite a lot of money from the government to support their practice which is really fantastic but if you're defining things in terms of you're putting things into a box then it doesn't mean there's that flexibility that sometimes craftspeople need who are working yeah. in quite a difficult business environment. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Charlotte. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? 
Yeah, so I'm at the moment I'm as I'm working on publishing a lot of my my thesis. So to get that sort of out there. But I'm also my kind of future projects I'm working at the moment on a, a new project which would work with the photographic archive of an anthropolo- American anthropologist called Douglas Harron, who visited Amami in 1951 to two, and he was brought there by the American Allied forces who were occupying the island until 1953. So he produced quite an incredible collection of photographs of Amami. And so he covered things like the, the natural environment, the uh, different sort of industries and crafts. So this included Oshimatsumugi and Dolazome, but also things like boat building and basketry. He also took these beautiful, beautiful photographs of different practices of the Amamian indigenous religion, which was based around Noro and the Yuta, who is kind of very similar to Japanese Shinto, but it's a Amamian version that, that comes from Okinawa originally. So he sort of documented lots of different lifestyle practices. And so the, the idea would be to work with this archive and try and fill in the gaps a little bit. It's an archive that was sort of acquired by um, the University of Syracuse, where, where Douglas Harring was based. And then, you know, there's not that much known about it, really. So the idea would be to take those photos back to Amami and, you know, speak with uh, local experts and elders and learn a little bit more and see how these photographs can be used by people in Amami today. So that's sort of one project. The other project I'm looking on is looking more at the production of bioregional textiles outside of Japan, um, potentially in the, the UK and the US. So this is a kind of natural progression from my work in Japan. So it's looking at how craftspeople have these strong relationships with their natural environment and you know, how, what, what sort of processes are ongoing in terms of looking at regenerative agriculture and uh, increasing biodiversity and storing carbon in the soil. So there's a lot of work that's being done in trying to not just reduce the impact of textiles on climate change, but also to try and improve the situation. So that's where I think my next body of research will, will go. Great. Well, we'll all be looking forward to that. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Charlotte. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. You can find a link to Charlotte's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by David Fedman, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine, to discuss landscapes of empire. David will share his research on the legacy of the Japanese empire's foresting initiative on the Korean Peninsula, taking a look at collaboration and resistance between colonized Koreans and Japanese imperial authorities, how afforestation was rich with oppressive discourse designed to raise Japanese ecology and lower Koreans, and how the initiative continues to shape the landscape of Korea long after the empire fell. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.